Welcome to the Sonic Acts Ya 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 Nay 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 podcast series on the occasion of Sonic Acts Academy 2020. In this episode, Leonardo de la Noche, an Amsterdam-based curator and writer, talks to Lukas Likacan, a Prague-based researcher and teacher who will be speaking at Sonic Acts Academy, which takes place in Amsterdam, starting on the 21st of February. Hi everyone, I'm Leonardo de la Noche and I'm here with a very interesting guest, uh, Lukas Likauchan. I hope I didn't butcher your, your surname. He's an up-and-coming theorist and researcher, author of a very interesting short book that I have here, Introduction to Comparative Planetology, which is also going to be the topic of our conversation today. It's based in Prague. I'm talking from cold Amsterdam today. And I will say, let's just jump straight into our conversation. So we started the new year. It's like, what, the second week of 2020. There is plenty of things to worry about in the news. New tech has started, maybe not with the best start that we wished for. Uh, but there's something, there is a sense that there is something to do. There is a sense of like, of closure with what happened in the 2010s. And we are now in a new, in a new moment. Like, I think as humans, we can kind of take these numbers and say, okay, this is a stepping stone. Now we're going to do something. And in particular, I will say that both politically, economically, and geopolitically, especially, climate change is really what is capitalizing the attention of everyone from, you know, people on the streets to scientists, to artists, to people into policy and so forth. And so culture now for, for a good part is also trying to deal with the horizon we have in front of us for the next 10, 20, and 30 years. And I have to say, I have to confess here live that I'm, a, I'm quite a gamer myself, so I spent some time playing video games. And they're one of the, I, at least personally, I feel one of the most interesting kind of cultural um, sectors of production that speak both, let's say, um, to more uh, a popular audience and a specialized ones in a very poetic, aesthetic, and sensorial way about important topics. So all, with, all these are due to introduce something that I've been obsessing about in the past weeks, playing it very thoroughly every day, which is a game you might have heard of, um, Death Stranding, by the famous Japanese, well, I would call him star director, Ido Kojima. Might know him because of Metal Gear Solid, if you have been in the business of video games. But otherwise, is one of the names to kind of always keep an eye on. And he, and he just published this, this great video game um, independently for the first time with Kojima Productions that really tap into many of, of, the, of the challenges, of the worries, and also of the strategies we might deploy for, for these next 10 or 20 years relating to climate change. And in particular, this game, I don't want to describe it too much to you. Maybe you should, you should play it, but if you're not a gamer, you're basically a porter. You're like a delivery guy, really, in the, in the most literal sense of the world. And um, you have to just bring kind of packages from A to B across a, a barren landscape, a destroyed America, where institutions have fallen apart. The landscape is very Icelandic or, or Nordic, so very, very solitary. And you're like, you're like struggling within this landscape to reconnect different knots, different uh, shell, uh, shelters, different cities to make America whole again. That's a, an actual line in the game. 
And so this landscape is just not a normal landscape. It's not a walking simulator, so to speak, this game. It's actually a, a landscape that is haunted. Haunted by what? Haunted by all like the life, in this case, human life, that has been inhabiting it. And because of extinction, is dying out. So whatever was there alive is now haunting the world of the living, not, not resolving to pass to, to the other side, so to speak. And in this part, in infrastructure has a role here to play. You are actually reconnecting something that we would call a sort of internet, much more magical, of course, to reconnect all these different dots in the US. And you have to struggle as you're connecting more and more dots, more and more cities, actually, the chances to see more and more of the traces of these extinctions, like basically increase, haunting ever more the landscape. So as you connect, you're actually driving the problem uh, at the same time. The video game is uh, very, very nice to play, but it has a lot of also extra material that is parascientific or fictionally scientific, which to me was very interesting, in which they really speak about all the different extinctions that have happened, how they were recorded, what meaning does it have to the, to the humans and how we're trying to make sense of them and how they are like a sign of the times that has, that has passed, but also almost a forecast of what's going to happen to us. And all these news are buried under the ground as time capsules that basically like in a feedback loop we can see what's going to happen to us and and so like drives the story and changes the way of action so when i was reading your book as i was playing this game i i instantly saw a connection here okay so i actually haven't had a chance to to play the game itself i had this wonderful introduction by leonardo and i think that what is really important about the game is the way how it presents a certain narrative about politics. And that's not the politics as a certain act of decision-making or a certain act of representation by, for example, electing some um, people in the parliament or so on. But it's more about thinking about politics as a sort of infrastructural practice where actually reconnecting cities by some kind of network is the most important is more most most important and the most vital gesture for the prolonging of the existence of a certain community of people and i think that also relates to some other important topics in relation uh, to to the book i recently wrote the introduction to comparative planetology because in the book i'm trying to argue at one point that we can read the planet itself as a sort of infrastructural space. Infrastructural space, which means that what we usually think about as a sort of superstructure on top of sitting on the top of the landscape, that is technosphere, that is the cities, technologies, medias, infrastructures, we can read these things as something that is actually a direct part of the planetary, not something which is an addition or something like a you know, a superstructural cultural layer, but something which is integral to the existence of the planet today. And something which is deeply entangled with the processes on the geophysical, geochemical, geological scale. And so in this sense, also the, this idea can be somehow backed or can have a certain kind of background in uh, contemporary media theory or design theory. When I think about certain theories such as, uh, for example, Benjamin Bratton, who talks about the stack and the ontology of the stack as a kind of framework which helps us to reconnect media realities with the realities which are, for example, geophysical and with realities which are, properly speaking, let's say, cultural. And so in this sense, the game 
does this kind of, or obviously, it seems that this this game does this kind of trick that it puts all these different layers together on one par. And I think that's what, what I really like about the book. But another important thing that you also mentioned in your explanation, Leonardo, is this, uh, uh, is this relation to some kind of spectral existence. That there are some haunting ghosts or there are some traces of the past life. Yeah. And I think that uh, in this sense, if we, if, if we just, define spectral the way how, for example, some philosophers do that, like, for example, French philosopher Kantan Meyazu, he talks about spectre as an entity which died, but which was not properly mourned. And this work of mourning is something which obviously has to be done also in relation to extinction. And it's not something that we can do individually, but, but more like something at, at least that's what I'm argue, arguing about in the book as something we have to do in the collective cultural sense. So what we need is to create a certain cultural techniques of mourning, which can also engage not only human, but also non-human, non-human agents in this sense. And I'm not sure whether that some work of mourning is actually done in the, in the game itself. Is that Leonardo? Well, in a way it is. Um, there is some, let's say, fictional science going on there in which actually de dead bodies have to be cremated right away. Otherwise, they come back to haunt the landscape. But um, So there is no mourning per se, but the interesting thing is that it kind of hinges on this sort of like Egyptian, ancient Egypt, I'm, I'm speaking of, um, vision of, of death, like the culture of death. So like the split between the Ha and the Ka, etc. So th th that's that's one kind of morbid kind of philosophy that he brings in, and 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 is used to kind of justify all this scientific, of course, between quotes underpinnings um, of the game. But there is not there is not really like mourning happening. What's what's happening, as in let's say a coming together of of, of humans. It's a sort of a form of solidarity against these haunted landscape in which you can build um, structures, you can build infrastructure um, that is, that will favor, that will appear actually, literally, in other people's game if you're playing online. So wow. you don't see anyone, but other people's structures and uh, kind of lines of help or supplies can appear in your world. And they if other players wishfully do that and like facilitate for others the the path basically from from a to b to reconnect uh, the whole uh, the whole landscape basically i think it's like uh, kojima prides himself as being the inventor of this new gaming genre called social stranding which is exactly this kind of like non non lifetime sort of like multiplayer cooperation but it's a game that is inched on cooperation rather than competitiveness like there is no competition between players yeah yeah but this this cooperation against certain kind of uh, haunting entities or haunting realities, that's something we can also relate to the ongoing six mass extinction in this way, because when we think about the very event of extinction, how it informs contemporary political practices or how it can actually inform contemporary political practices, because in the opinion or in, in the opinion I'm trying to, to unpack in the book, uh, what is important is to live with the truth of this extinction and design with this horizon of extinction as something like a specific mode of political action, which actually allows you not to 
ignore or neglect this uh, ongoing extinction, but more living with that as something that has already happened and something which is always present in certain way, even if, for example, extinction of human species is, for example, some time in the future, but to live with this fact of a future extinction somehow informs the present in this way. And I think that this is important loop that, uh, to, to ha- that can help us to unpack a bit different mode of political design, architectural or artistic practice as well. As, for example, some other philosophers like Ray Brassier or Jean-Francois Lyotard, they, they have this kind of claim that everything is in a sense dead already, especially when we think about that from the perspective of not the time of the planet, but the time of the sun, for example, which will also die in, I don't know, five or 5.5 billion years or so. And in that moment, also the very medium of the thinking, the very medium of life somehow disappears. And so all these extinction events in the future can somehow, that's the claim, can somehow inform the present and the political action in the present in this way. There's something very interesting um, that I find about about your work. I mean, of course, you're, you're, you've been writing this short book that is now out, but I know that you will be continuing writing probably for, for a, like, you know, a larger book where you will dive more into details into this. And I, I honestly look forward to read it. But what I find interesting also between the, the game as this kind of aesthetic experience, aesthetic object, and the words you use in the, in the text. For instance, you already unpacked the notion of the spectral and the spectral earth that, that you use as a term, which I, I personally find it very useful to kind of na- navigate the complexity. But there is another one that you, that you mentioned that I found also very, very fascinating, which is Monster Earth. Oh yeah, that's not me. It's, I think I picked it up from uh, Ben Woodard, who's a wonderful philosopher that actually also oh, really? did a bit of work on uh, specters. He wrote this uh, article that actually was kind of influential to me, which is about this uh, series called Leftovers by HBO. You know, Damon Lindelof's uh, like a later later thing. I think it's 2014 or 15 that the series was finished. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a series about a sudden departure of, I guess, 2% of the world population. I'm not sure about the number, but it's like a sudden depart- the departure that is so brutal that people just like disappear that you have someone next to you sitting and suddenly you turn and you turn back and the person is not there and this is the kind of event that is is that about the event itself really the series but exactly about strategies of mourning and coping with this fact of sudden departure how they become cultural events or cultural techniques in the way that some of these uh some, some of these people that lose someone in this sudden departure or, for example, lose the whole family, just go uh, and join some kind of cult, mm-hmm. some kind of cult that, for example, is a cult of nihilists that just and these people just smoke all the time and just stand on the street smoking and, you know, holding some signs, telling everyone that we need to remember the sudden departure. And these things of these different strategies of mourning and also madness that is related to certain aspects of mourning are uh, are unpacked in this series. But uh, that's that's mainly Ben's Ben Ben Wooder's work on this. But it was also something that inspired me a lot in thinking about how to 
bring this concept of the spectral earth to to the foreground also in uh, also also in my thinking because i think there's something under studied in the very notion of the spectral not not as a sort of actually existing entity but as something that is more like a philosophical tool that can help us uh, to create a a sort of like a shadow realm or a shadow situation that is somewhere in the future but has a very direct impact on the present or can have a sort sort of information for the present and i think that is also something that i already unpacked with relation to this um, you know thinking about extinction and so on and there's many philosophers i guess that have a sort of similar similar framework of thinking about the future as something that is directly in uh informing the present actually you're you've been speaking about philosophers and you are one yourself but you're also an activist i since i know you personally i know you've been you've been involved in, with activist groups maybe you wouldn't call yourself an activist so i don't want to put this label on you um but you've been you've been working with like political action on, on the streets etc et so like my, my next question for you would be like having this this knowledge i mean this in-depth knowledge about um extinction and how this is a useful tool for thinking of the present and also kind of pivot right the cultural discussions towards that and kind of acknowledge that and work with it mm. but also like how how could this guide um political action on the ground yeah i think that there are two possible avenues of how this can be uh appropriated one of them is to use it as a sort of uh, strategy of uh, you know always reminding people of the upcoming sort of uh, really like 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 informing people about uh, a really imminent catastrophe or a really imminent disaster or always keeping that in mind of people which is for example i think the strategy of extinction rebellion but i think what i'm more interested in is uh, how to use this truth of extinction actually as a sort of uh, source of environmental hope in this way mm-hmm. that actually we can do something and that there it, there can be a meaningful change but this change is conditioned by our ability to somehow comprehend the scale of the disaster and uh, in this regard i guess that there's a good example in some activist practices that are for example tackling the infrastructures of fossil fuel industry that i think that those are people who are mobilized in uh, by the scale of the disaster they for example experience some person- personal environmental grief as a sort of psychological state of certain depression or in a, or uh, or uh, even a resignation but that are still able to mobilize themselves for a very meaningful political action that is actually reducing um CO2 emissions in the atmosphere because when you cut the work of the coal plant for a day or two or when you cut the work workings of uh, some coal mine in Germany such as Endegelendes activist political actions or there are examples of the activist circles in Czech Republic in Netherlands even i think it's Koderot how it is spelled in uh, in um, in in Dutch and these are the meaningful political actions informed by a certain kind of grief or mourning but actually translating this truth of extinction into a sort of you know um, a hope mm-hmm. or a situation of a certain hope yeah yeah 
so I, I think this is the one very direct implication about for the activism. I'm not an activist myself anymore because I'm full-time teacher and a curator and I'm uh, trying to be still more something like a, you know, a supporter and a fan of activism or be someone who can help when uh, provide basically some basic infrastructures, for example, when people want to meet in a gallery, for example, and so on. So the gallery can be used, for example, as a, as a as a as a place to meet for activists and so on, but uh, from uh, this kind of uh, brief experience I have from my past and also from these affinities with the group in the, with, with different groups in the present, uh, I guess like this is one of the one of the main ways how thinking about extinction can inform the present political practice. But then there is level which is less about direct activism and more about thinking on a bit longer term uh, struggle scale when we think about different struggles that are, for example, fought in the framework of some legal battles. I know that, for example, Friends of the, Friends of the Earth Netherlands are suing Shell for uh, causing climate change. I think there was also recently some sort of uh, successful appeal to the court in Hague yeah. about... Uh, about the about that, that there need to be some um, something done by the government uh, in to reduce emissions much faster than was the original plan, I guess. And these legal battles are also interesting arena, which are which that, that it doesn't have to be necessarily a sort of uh, only an action of the activist sort. It can be also a certain work of expertise or certain work of this kind of legal battle, for example. But uh, I think the, the the most general implication in the book, which is really like the, the umbrella implication, is that we need to rethink the very notion of geopolitics. And that rethinking of geopolitics comes with uh, thinking about who are the real actors or who are the main actors of the geopolitics in relation to climate emergency. We usually think about national states as those entities that, uh, for example, have their representatives that convene at uh, diplomatic forums, at uh, different uh, conf climate conferences, such as uh, COP conferences and so on. And we see, you know, almost... 30 years of failures in this in this respect and given this space of um, ongoing failures in relation to the certain standard geopolitics of climate emergency what are the alternative frameworks or how we can alternatively think about the geopolitical space and i think coming back to infrastructures coming back to the death stranding game uh that's also a certain sense um a geopolitical arena unfolding there that building together or you know weaving together a certain network of uh, of cities of communities that's the sort of creating of the parallel geopolitical layer as well because my personal opinion is that cities and communities on these scales of the municipalities and so on can have much more important role in the future of the climate emergency geopolitics because you can think about them as a sort of as a sort of giant networks or giant spiders that it's just a yeah it's just a municipality for example that occupies some land but the land you need to make all the food 
to provide all the electricity and all the other goods that the neighborhood or the municipality needs actually covers much larger area than the area of the municipality or the city itself. And then you can create this sort of the logistical trophic, trophic cascades that can actually change the the whole supply chain in a way by changing a certain policies on the municipal municipal or city city level. So I think it's also a general trend by people who are thinking about urban urbanism, urban design of for the next 10, 20 years, that there is a certain um, that there there is that there is a certain assumption that cities will become much important players and that can be also related to the way how they can become an alternative geopolitical players in this sense. Actually what you're what you're saying uh about the the state and the role of, of the state as mm -hmm. this kind of unity or like the minimum unity to for political action, etc., relates also to one of the projects, as you know, that I've been involved with, um, also Benjamin Bratton, Arthur Stein, and Klaus Kaltenbrauer within Digital Earth and the Hattie New Institute, which is how to, which is to create an atlas of the world today through the lens, indeed, of technology and infrastructure, so the techno technopolitical as the political of the 21st century, and then, and then be presented with something that you also tackle in the book with the question of representation, as you represent things, how you create images um, of these. And for us, the question, in a way, it's, it's very complex and, and very simple, is you're making a map. If it's a political map and you don't have states, what do you have? What, what is the unity on which you build this connection and, and the conglomerates and the relation and the frictions, etc.? As we are, we are still kind of researching and, and fine-tuning and each, of course, um, region of the world probably asks also for a different set of tools uh, to do justice to what's, mm -hmm. what's on the ground, which is a very important thing about mapping in the 21st century. But at the same time, we're like, we, focused on actually, we are focusing on frictions, like the frictions that appear, whether that's you know, between the activist group in Germany and, and the state, and the municipality that is there and the corporation that is mining the coal might reveal different aspects of all these different organizations in different ways. So, of course, organizations are, are, um, are very different around the world. So we have to kind of like fine tune that to each specificity. But I want to, uh, this question of representation, I want to kind of hook up to the news of the day, which I think is extremely relevant uh, for our conversation. So following the material trace of coal, I want to kind of bring to our conversation what's happening right now. Um, you heard for sure, and I'm sure also the listeners have learned about the bushfires, the catastrophic fires that are going on in Australia. Why the coal? Australia is a big exporter and miner of coal. It's, it has like coal uh, as a tight, let's say, grip on society, both in terms of media control, geopolitics of course and whatnot but the very interesting thing about the australian fires at least to me is the fact that different technologies have been deployed to try and stop these fires to actually contain them mostly now and uh, and when it's on the scale of the catastrophe that oftentimes let's say human societies recognize the vulnerability at the agency of, of whether that's the landscape or it's the fire or climate change in itself having a very material very personal very violent instantiation in in the moment you have to leave your home for instance and so the, there is the fire service that is fighting against this basically golem at the moment and they of course are using um 
computer modeling and scientific modeling to kind of get a grip on how these blazes will work and where they will go to, of course, to evacuate areas and fight it and preserve the, the wildlife. But what, what came to be in the past two weeks is that the, the, the sheer load of fire is too much for the scientific model that they are at hand to compute. So there is, we, we can see basically an inability to, to grasp um, what, the, what the fire is doing with the landscape and how it's dominating it. And the other thing that is being used in, um, in, in this crisis, of course, is, is weather, weather, pat, weather patterns, which actually, because of the size of the fire, are also getting all much weirder, much, un much more uncanny and unpredictable. So two tools that usually uh, are relied upon for climate emergency and, and fire and fine containment basically uh, ended up being worn out tools already. Like the, the scale of the, of the disaster is beyond computation. So this brings us to a question of modeling. What does it mean to model the landscape? What does it mean to model climate change? And what kind of picture of both the ground and of the planet we get from these models? Yeah, that's a really good question. Thanks for that. Because when we usually think about modeling, we think about models as something which is uh, uh, a reduction, a mapping, an approximation. And I think that's important to keep in mind that the model is always an approximation that can guide certain action because it analyzes some situation, it creates some prediction and some prescription can be somehow deduced from that uh, prediction. But also, uh, I sometimes wonder to what extent we need these approximations, because to grasp the reality of climate crisis, it's sometimes happening right before I, our eyes if we look on the immediate surroundings in the right way. And doesn't mean that we all have to keep, on, uh, keep our is just on Australia at the moment because that's just one locality that is currently like a hotspot of a certain planetary disaster. But this planetary disaster is really distributed all over the place. Uh, I'm speaking now from Prague, which is in Czech Republic. And for example, one of the major consequences of climate crisis in Czech Republic is the, uh, is the desertification, the, the, the loss of arable land. And also it's related to water sources and decrease of the water sources and so on. So in this sense, the, every single person on the planet has a certain aspects of the catastrophe right before their eyes. And it's more about the framework, the visual framework we use to interpret these immediate surroundings. Because if we think about the climate change as an abstract concept, which is mostly living in the computational, computational models, which is not the bad, bad thing at all, but it, it is just one layer of the reality of the climate catastrophe, uh, we lose, um, we kind of lose uh, this ability to read those traces that are in our surround surroundings. So, for example, it's, a, it's not an example which is directly related to climate crisis, but it can be done. But uh, every single city, the facade of every single building is covered by with, 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 with particles that are basically pollution in a, in a city. And our lungs are in the same sense, a sort of like a photograph of the air that we breathe. And they are imprints of that 
climate in which we live. And so whether that's organisms as a sort of environmental proxies or our own bodies as a sort of environmental proxies or architectural structures as, as, as these kinds of environmental proxies, we can spot several traces of the disasters around us. And that this leads me to a sort of um, reconsideration of what is exactly the visual regime of climate emergency, because it doesn't have to be just about computational representation of the disaster. It can be also about reading images that are disastrous at the same time. I think the, like a really ingenious, uh, like a really wonderful example uh, from the art world is work, is several works by Susan Shipley. So who, for example, talks about uh, about the oil, oil spill in a, in a, in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, the Deepwater Horizon, uh, the Deepwater Horizon oil spillage, and when she describes this that oil spillage, you know, that oil on the surface of the sea is not it's the it's the is the disaster, but it's the image of that disaster is the same time. She says that it's an oil painting in a way, yeah, mm -hmm. but it's an oil painting that is at the same time that disaster. Yeah. So it's a painting that is the disaster, and that's the same what holds for uh, images of the bushfire in this sense that they do not illustrate the catastrophe; they capture the trace of the catastrophe, which has a visual trace as well. Yeah or the visual aspect in this sense as well. I wanted to mention someone you're familiar with for sure, who is Al Gore. Yeah. So uh, Al, Al Gore gave a very interesting speech in 1998. He still had political ambitions at the time, and he was like really positioning himself at this mm. scientific, technological, basically version of democratic American um, globalization uh, project and and in Los Angeles he gave this speech at the California Science Center about something that he called the digital earth. And so it what this digital earth is for us today in 2020 is the most obvious thing possible. It's basically Google Earth but a public national version of that. But back in the days it was like a cutting edge ambition. So he proposed to create this 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 globe, this, this virtual globe that you could spin and unpack and zoom in and, and zoom out. Basically, you will have the, the world in the palm of your uh, hand um, through the screen of the computer, of course. That would be a sort of internet for the earth sciences. We will be able to create climate models, externally comprehensive to spark climate action. At the same time, this would be, you know, the, the, the locus, the, the playground of this new globalized person. I mean, he, he spoke actually in um, specifically of an um, American kid. So I, that also speaks about the political um, ambition of these. But there are, there are a couple of things that in this kind of model of the world he presented that of course are off. Like one is the smoothness of the surface, this sort of like, yeah, not taking into account the terrestrial, as you call it, like the world is a globe again, like the, the one, the Western globe that we are familiar with. And so there is, there is no violence on the ground. Everyone is on, is on the same kind of like, on the same layer and so forth, which is a very problematic notion. And then there is, of course, what's powering this, this model. 
which is of course this kind of like corporate and military apparatus of the US specifically through the GPS satellites. I mean, it was still the 90s. So Elon Musk was nowhere to be found sending satellites in space. It used to be a much more complex and, uh, <laughs> and edgy, you know, uh, edgy just, operation. Just, just, a, just a fun fact. Uh, my flat is next to the headquarters of the European Global Navigation Satellite System Agency, which is in Prague. So that's actually the a di direct market competitor of GPS system. And this is the only satellite navigation system which is actually, uh, you know, um, operated by a civilian civilian uh, in institution. It's not a military satellite system, but it's a civic, uh, civic satellite system. Uh, yeah, great. So, I mean, this is, <laughs> I guess this is the mat material histories we are all embedded yeah. with in terms yeah. of, of urban landscape and so forth. And... Um, and as you know, through my work, I mean, starting the co-starting the, the digital earth and being curator there, which is this global research network for artists and designers, mainly from, from, from Asia and Africa, dealing with the concept of like, how do we represent this planet? What are the models? What are the cosmological representation that we, mm. we want to comply with that, that we create? And these are, of course, very diverse. I mean, Al Gore, of course, didn't lose his presidential race because of this fact, but it was dead wrong on, on, on many levels. And, um, and I know that you're also working on, 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 on the cosmograms, like in a way, introduction to comparative planetology mm. is, is, is almost a map through the complexities of all these different modeling of the planet. Right. Uh, I, I, it's 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 a really good way how to come back to the core of the of the of the, of the book because uh, let me start with um, perhaps this ambition to have a like a complete I mean a sort of complete model of the of the planet that can be presented as a as a totality I think there is something really important on the very ambition to have planet graspable as a totality, because that actually is the way how to institute some kind of geopolitical order. If I look back into the history of the legal theory and geopolitics, or thinking about geopolitics, mainly coming back to Carl Schmitt, he identifies this totality, this wholeness of the globe as a basis of the modern geopolitical order. And so that's something that's uh, also related to this a sort of interiorizing ambition of the of the model such as the digital earth that uh, uh, that it can uh, you know present you this totality and can then lead a certain way how to govern that that totality because if you know the object that's the way how to govern the object in this way that there is a sort of transition which is well known from the history of sociology between power and knowledge that on that knowing of the yeah, that object of the totality of that object can help you to govern and control or to exercise power over that over that object in this case the object is the planet but there is another um, uh, interesting way how to how to think about this that's from more from the perspective of philosophy when uh, when i take for example history of czech philosophy especially people like jan patochka who's quite famous as a philosopher in the field of phenomenology uh, Patochka said when he defined philosophy that the problem of philosophy is the world as a wall. And so there's again this ambition to have the grasp, the understanding of the wall, of the, of the wholeness of the world. But this problem of the wall as a world and the conditions of climate emergency, I think it somehow translates into another problem. And that's the problem, 
how to think about the planet as a wall or whether we want to think about the planet as a wall and if yes how and i guess that the standard western way how to do that is to think about the planet as a sort of giant interior or something that can be interiorized into some vernaculars of the cultural or technological mediation and something that can be then narrated as some totality because it is something that is grasped by individual human mind or some apparatus of the collective knowledge. And I'm more interested in the geopolitics or geopolitical frameworks which treat the planet not as this kind of interior but something that is genuinely something exterior, that it is some kind of alienated uh, exteriority, something which is uh, in us, but also something which is completely elsewhere, which is not completely, you know, understandable by us. Something which is hidden, something which, something which is opaque, something which is not always traceable in all its aspects. And uh, talking about these kinds of geopolitics, uh, or these kinds of, not just geopolitics, but let's come back to philosophy more, because I really love this, uh, these lyrics from... Um, from uh, song by Holly Herndon, uh, it's called Extreme Loud, uh, that song, and she says there that uh, we are completely outside ourselves and the world is completely inside us. And I think that this is something that is very instructive if we think about the geopolitics of the planetary or the philosophical basis of the geopolitics of the planetary, because it somehow makes the world as something which is exterior and which goes through us or, or which inhabits us rather than we inhabit it. And this inhabitation by the forces of the world rather than we inhabiting those forces, this occupation of the human by the planetary, I think that's, uh, that's like a philosophical, philosophical baseline that can guide us to a very different notion of what geopolitics can be in future of the Anthropocene or in the post-Anthropocene about. Does it make sense? That's, I mean, I think th this is a, a wonderful answer on which to wrap up our conversation as you, as you, as you like really dived um, deep into, into this. And I also think Holly Arden is a, is a great singer. I just <laughs> want to make um, just one, one clarification that the digital earth as the project I'm working for is in no way associated with Al Gore before <laughs> someone thinks so. It's it's only the name. It's only the name. So, <laughs> but yeah, uh, I'm sorry. I also meant the Al Gore's digital earth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it's good that we mention it at the end. It can be the, be yeah. the cliffhanger. Um, but I, this is if, if I if if I may just to do like a like like an additional comment on this. Like do. coming back to, uh, to coming back to uh, Al Gore, there is something. There is also something very Californian or something very American about these ideas of making some computational images of images or models of the totality in the way that after I did, there was a wonderful exhibition in uh, Hakave in Berlin back in early 2000, uh, 2010s, like at the beginning of the decade, which just ended. And it was about the disappearance of the outside in the Californian counterculture of the 60s and 70s, how cybernetics together with a certain early environmentalism together with a certain new age spiritualism created a sort of like a cultural situation in which it was possible to think about the world as a representable and governable totality. And this is 
more like a, a comment on a certain ongoing influence of a certain cultural space or on a large part of the world's population, thanks to, for example, influence of uh, platform corporations, which are also historically related to this kind of Californian ideology. Uh, yeah. I think it's important also to re remind the listeners again that this conversation uh, has happened in the frame of Sonic Acts Academy, which is happening from the 21st to the 23rd of February. Lukash Likachan will speak on the 23rd, which I believe it's a Sunday. So please come by and uh, I will say, I will advise everyone to read your book. Where, where can they find it? Where can people buy your book? Well, the ebook. The electronic version is uh, distributed by iTunes and Amazon, and you can get uh, the paper version or the paperback version. There are several booksellers uh, in the Netherlands as well as uh, in other countries such as Germany, or you can also visit Strelka site where uh, it should be already available as well. But the safe option, if you want to read it quickly, if you just want to have it like a Sunday afternoon read, the, the easiest way to do is just to download the ebook and to have it for example, with a coffee or a breakfast on the weekend. So you have the plan for your next Sunday, get the <laughs> book as an ebook, read it with a, with a coffee as Lucas um, suggested. So thanks a lot, Lucas, for this conversation. Yeah, thank you, Leonardo. And I look forward um, to the Academy in February. Me too. Yeah, take care. Bye. Bye.